0: You may be seated. All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the uh, second to the last book in the Bible. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. It's the book, the one chapter wonder, right before Revelation. Jude has one chapter. We spent some time uh, in Jude several months ago and we looked at verses. 1 through 7, and we're going to continue in that today. Um, Very very uh, neglected book of the scriptures, but uh, a book that the Lord has given us, and it is so rich when you you actually dive into it. So we're going to continue in that today. I'm going to start our reading this morning at at verse 1, and I'm going to go through verse 10. We're going to be spending our sermon today on verse 8, though. This is the Word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Here ends the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you recognizing this morning that um, we are are needy, I'm needy, we're needy to to help, um, to help us to hear your word. I'm needy to help you to preach your word. The people that are here listening, whether it be here uh, in this building or outside or over the live stream, are needy to hear your word. Lord, grant us grace to for me to preach it in the power of Your Spirit and us to hear it in the power of Your Spirit. And I pray that You would accomplish great things through Your Word today. We're relying on it and dependent upon it. Oh, Lord, bless Your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year was 2002, and 15-year-old Kara had gone over to her, her friend's house to water her plants. Well, while she was there... A car pulled up into the driveway, and a man yelled out the window for her to come over that he wanted to give her a brochure. Well, as Kara approached the car, the man pulled a gun on her and apprehended her and stuffed her into a container in his trunk. See, Kara had just been kidnapped by a serial killer by the name of Richard Evidence, Now, these stories, hearing stories like this should make us sick to our stomachs. To think that we live in a world that's so broken and so fallen and so messed up that people would actually steal other people, it's crazy. If only Kara had known that one of the schemes, the common schemes of kidnappers is to lure their victims close to their cars so that they could snatch them up, how this might have never happened. But it did happen. And it happened because Kara had no idea that one of the behaviors that she needed, what the behaviors she needed to be alert to to begin with. She had no idea of the common schemes that kidnappers employ. Well, just as there, this story reminds us that there are kidnappers in the world that that we need to be alert to. So the book of Jude reminds us that there are also spiritual kidnappers that actually look to infiltrate the church in order to kidnap God's people. They're known as apostates. And just as this story reminds us that there are common behaviors that kidnappers in the world share that we need to be aware of, so the book of Jude reminds us there are certain behaviors that apostates uh, share that we need to be alert to as well. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you think that you are spiritually perceptive enough that if an apostate were to show up in the midst of Grace Church or whatever church you might be a part of, do you think you're spiritually perceptive enough to be able to identify them? Don't be too quick to answer that question because the scriptures have told us that apostates disguise themselves quite well. Paul says, uh, or it's said in the scriptures that they are, uh, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are incredibly influential and persuasive and likable, and they have an appearance of godliness. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Do you know that there's millions of people right now who are following apostates that have no idea that they are following apostates? There may be even some people in this room who are following apostates or listening on the live stream that have no idea that they're following apostates. Why? Because they, are, they, they disguise themselves well. They are so easily influential and easy to lead astray. So how can we ensure that we are, are not falling into this trap or that we never fall into this trap? Answer, we make sure we know what apostates look like. We make sure that we pay close attention to the spiritual portrait of an apostate that God has graciously given to to us in His Word, in the book of Jude. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We are going to see that spiritual portrait begin to take shape as we look at Jude, verse 8. Jude, verse 8. Before we jump into the text this morning, a little bit of context. Jude, you may remember, we talked about that he was uh, most likely the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And he wrote this letter out of desperation to a local church that was in danger. This church had been infiltrated by apostates. They had crept into the church unnoticed. They had made their way onto the membership roles of the church. And we, you may remember we defined what an apostate is by looking in the scriptures. We said that an apostate is someone who once professed to trust in Christ, but who has since turned away from him. And sometimes we said that that happens publicly, where a person outwardly denounces Christ, saying that I'm not a Christian anymore. But oftentimes it happens silently in the, as a person sits in the church pews, as a person continues to be amongst God's people, and, it, and they are dangerous when they sit there. See, this was most, most likely the case for the apostate that Jude is writing about. That's how they were able to sneak in under the radar without the church noticing And one of the key indicators that Jude points out about their apostasy was that they were perverting the grace of God, he says, into sensuality. In other words, they were turning God's grace into something that it's not, that is, into a license to indulge in their sinful sexual passions. In our first week that that we looked at Jude, we saw that Jude's clarion call in this letter for for the church to combat their corrupting influence was to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is, to contend for, battle for, protect, guard that body of teaching that was delivered from God to the apostles and then to the church. That is what we know today as our Bibles, to hold fast to it. In our second week, uh, we looked at how uh, the the three historical examples of apostasy that Jude mentions in verses 5 through 7, uh, which each of those instances ended in God's crushing judgment. And that's where we are going to pick up today in verse 8. Jude says, yet in like manner, these people also. See, a, a comparison is being made here. A connection is being drawn. Well, what is it? Well... It's between the behaviors of the apostates in the three historical examples that Jude had just mentioned, and the behaviors of the apostates that had crept into the church that he's writing to. That's the comparison. They are doing the same kinds of things. They're engaging in the same kinds of of sinful behaviors, and as Jude makes clear in his letter, they will experience the same kind of judgment. In verse 4, he says that they are designated for this condemnation. In verse 10, he states that they are destroyed by living according to their instincts. In verse 13, he vividly describes the everlasting nature of the judgment that is to come upon them for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Listen, you don't want to be yoked with an apostate when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Apostates are dangerous. Their presence is not neutral Their very design is to lead disciples astray like a spiritual kidnapper. You may remember in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is speaking to the uh, uh, the elders or pastors of the Ephesian church. And he's he's exhorting them to be alert for when he leaves. He says, "...I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things." to draw away disciples after them. So they speak twisted things. That's things not in accordance with the word of God. And what's the purpose for this? Well, to draw away disciples after them. That's the apostate's goal. To lure you away from following Christ. How? By offering you an alternative to his word that is incredibly exciting and enticing. And Paul says that the result will be like a bloodbath. He says, it's like fierce wolves ripping a flock of sheep to shreds. They're not going to spare the flock. Apostates are very dangerous. And if we're thinking rightly, we want to do everything that we can to avoid their destruction in our lives, both individually as well as as a church corporately. And so I want to urge you to pay careful attention this morning as our Lord begins to sketch a spiritual portrait of what an apostate looks like. The main point I'd like you to take away is this, that apostates can be difficult to identify. Therefore, know the signs of an apostate and stay alert. And we're going to see three of these signs today. And Lord willing, the next time I preach, we will continue in the book of Jude and see more of those signs. But the first sign I want to show you today, and by the way, I am going to spend the most time on this sign So don't become restless after you think, wow, we've got two more to go. First sign, apostates appeal to another source of revelation, not Scripture alone. That's in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. Notice what Jude doesn't say. He doesn't say, yet in like manner, these people also relying on the Bible, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Why doesn't he say that? Well, it's because relying on God's word would never lead anyone into sexual immorality or any of these other grievous sins. No, no. In order for an apostate to justify their their heretical teaching and sinful lifestyle, they have to appeal to a source other than the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. That's what they have to do. That's what they must do. Jude says that these men rely on their dreams. Now, when you and I think about dreams, we tend to think about those movies that play in our heads at night when we're sleeping. But that's not exactly what Jude has in mind here. The Greek word that he uses, translated as dreams, is not really the typical word for dreams in the New Testament. This word is actually only used in one other place in the New Testament, which actually will shed some light on its meaning. You may remember, at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he, he's preaching and he quotes the prophet Joel to explain exactly what's going on as a result of the Holy Spirit's coming. I mean, wondrous things, amazing things. And he says this, quoting the prophet Joel, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so these dreams that Joel is referring to, they actually correspond to what's going on at Pentecost. That when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit revealed the Word of God to the apostles, empowered them, and then they in turn proclaimed it, and the Jews who were there from different nations were actually hearing it proclaimed in their own languages. And so these dreams are revelatory in nature, where God is communicating His Word, typically through His apostles, to His people. And we can see this in different places in the New Testament. For instance, you may remember in Galatians 1, Paul's talking about the gospel that he preaches. He says, I didn't receive it from a human being. He said, I received it from revelation. You may remember a handful of times in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul has these visions or revelations. We see Peter, the Apostle Peter having a revelatory vision in the book of Acts. as You may remember the sheet coming down from heaven. We see the Apostle John having a revelatory vision in the book of Revelation. All of these, by the way, are a continual fulfillment of what Joel had prophesied would happen. And the two things that every single one of these dreams had in common was this. One, they all had continuity with each other. And two... They all had continuity with God's Word in the Old Testament. There wasn't any contradiction there. But the supposed revelatory dreams of the apostates, well, didn't come from the Holy Spirit. And they certainly didn't have continuity with God's Word. Instead, there was contradiction. You know that visions and dreams are a hallmark of of false prophets that God Himself pointed out in the Old Testament in order to warn Israel about false prophets? Here's what he says in Jeremiah 23. I'll give you two examples. S- same passage. Thus says the Lord, verse 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 32. Behold, I am against those who prophesy. Lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. So here we have a historical example of exactly what apostates do. They appeal to another and rely upon another source of revelation, not God's word. See, this is the fundamental error of every apostate. This is the error from which all of their other errors flows from. That is, this other source of revelation. Now, here's the kicker. Identifying the other source of revelation can sometimes be quite easy, and sometimes it can be quite difficult. And so if we're going to be effective in resisting the allure of apostates, we need to be aware of the various ways that apostates employ other sources of revelation. And I want to point out three of those uh, other sources of revelation this morning. First is the visions, dreams, and mystical experiences as a source of revelation. This is, was certainly the case with uh, the apostates Jude is writing about. But in this category, you'll also find Joseph Smith, who is the founder of Mormonism. Joseph Smith had a dream slash vision where an angel named Moroni visited him and eventually led Joseph to... Uh, these golden tablets that were buried in New York and he unearthed the golden tablets and he translated the golden tablets in what is known today as the Book of Mormon. Any unbiased observer who actually studies the Book of Mormon will find that it is riddled with historical errors, anachronisms, plagiarism, works that had already been written. And yet 16 and a half million people worldwide today are relying on it as a revelation from God. Also in this category of visions, dreams, and mystical experiences are some charismatic churches. These are churches with a hyper-focus on the Holy Spirit and supposed revelations from Him. One example of this is Joyce Meyer. I want you to listen to what she says. She says, The Bible can't even find a way to explain this. Not really. That is why you have got to get it by revelation. There are no words to explain what I'm telling you I have got to just trust God that He is putting it into your spirit like He is putting it into mine. This other mystical source of revelation is apparently how Joyce Meyer can, can justify some of her heresies, like, for instance, that while Jesus was on the cross, He stopped being the Son of God. Or the other famous one, that Jesus went to hell to pay the price for our sins and He was tormented by demons, and if you don't believe that, you can't be saved clearly contradicting God's Word. So beware of those who appeal to visions, dreams, and mystical experiences. The next one I want to point out, other sources of Revelation, is biased interpretations. Now, this one is one that is hard to identify sometimes. This is where one person or a few people's biased interpretations of the Scriptures effectively become the other source of Revelation. And so in this category, you'll find Charles Taze Russell who was the founder of what has become known today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles, he didn't like what the, uh, the Bible had to say about hell, and so he developed his own personal interpretation of the Bible that excluded hell, and that continued to exclude a number of other things and add a number of other things. He eventually started his own magazine known as The Watchtower, where he propagated his heretical teaching. And then today, The Watchtower... Uh, organization has become this publishing powerhouse that t- turns out hundreds of millions of books and pamphlets and brochures every single year that propagate the heretical teachings of a few, and if, heretical interpretations of a few. Also in this category of biased interpretations are theologically liberal churches, and in many of those are in the category of known as, Protestant, or known as mainline Protestant denominations. In many of these churches, the Bible is not held to be the infallible and inerrant Word of God, especially by the clergy. But I will tell you, they are experts at hiding that belief. In some of these churches, they disguise this by stating that the Bible contains the Word of God. But what they mean by that is that the Bible is a a mixture of both God's Word and not God's Word, of divine truth and human error. Other churches hold that the Bible becomes the Word of God as you read it, and God reveals the kernel of truth in the midst of all the errors. And guess who, by the way, guess who gets determined what is God's Word and what's human error? Well, the theological elites of that particular church or denomination, the divinity professors, the high church clergy. They are for all practical purposes with their biased interpretations the other source of revelation, So they decide whether or not the scriptures that clearly condemn things like abortion or homosexuality or uh, transgender or or sexual immorality in general and others, they decide whether those are the Word of God. And many of those have chosen, no, no, that, that part's not the Word of God. They decide which attributes of God are truly God and which are human error. They decide what sin is. They decide what righteousness is. They decide what salvation is and what the great commission is and in many instances they decide also wrongly beware of those who appeal to their biased and erroneous interpretations of the bible this next category i want to mention the last one in in this section of revelations um, appealing to another source of revelation is written and unwritten traditions now in this category you'll find the catholic church And that is no surprise. If you are a Catholic, you you would agree with this to be true. In the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church made clear that they rely on two sources of special revelation, the scriptures and the traditions of the church. And one of the primary uh, features of tradition is this idea that the teaching of Jesus and the apostles was, yes, handed down to us through the scriptures, the word of God, but also Uh, by the word of mouth. And so there's this teaching and this doctrine that's not, not in the word of God, but it's been handed down by word of mouth from one Roman pontiff to the next, from one pope to the next, from one generation to the next. And through this secret channel of revelation, I think it's pretty clear to see that many errors that undermine the biblical gospel have crept into the Catholic Church. I'll give you two examples of that. First is purgatory, to purge your remaining sins. Second one is the Catholic Mass, which is, if you know anything about the Catholic Mass, it is an ongoing sacrifice of Christ. And so these two uh, errors that have crept in the church, um, they they have undermined the gospel and undermined the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifices for the sins of His people. They've effectively turned Jesus into a liar when He said on the cross... It is finished. That means the debt has been paid. There's no, there's no more sin debt to pay. No more sacrifice needing to be made. I just want you to say, if, if you're relying on tradition, don't, don't forget that Jesus had some scathing, scathing words for those who by obeying their tradition voided God's word. Here's what he said to the Pharisees and the scribes whose traditions had resulted in a violation of just the fifth commandment. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I want to urge you, please beware of those who appeal to written and unwritten traditions as another source of revelation. Now, I want you to notice the two common features that you will see in every single one of these examples that I've given. They all rely on another source of revelation, but they all also appeal to the Bible in some way. See, this is what makes them so dangerous, so easy to lead people astray. Hasn't this been the battle since the Garden of Eden? I mean, this is exactly what happened when Satan came via the serpent and questioned, did God really say And then what did he do? He offered him another source of revelation that is his own that, by the way, was exciting and enticing. You can be like God. How exciting, how enticing to Adam and Eve. The reason that we can be so easily led astray by apostates is because what they offer is exciting and enticing. It plays our sinful hearts like a fiddle. It creates a God that thinks like we think, and acts like we want Him to act, and that can go in so many different directions. To the heart that longs for a God who will give it a perpetual spiritual high, where emotions are popping like fireworks. Charismatic churches, like Bethel, for instance, are the perfect spiritual narcotic with all of their other sources of revelation. To the legalistic heart that wants a God who will let them play a role in earning their salvation. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Catholic Church are magnetic with their other sources of revelation to the heart that longs for a God that will uh, approve of their sexual appetites. Look, liberal churches with their biased interpretations are perfect places to settle. Do you see how exciting and enticing and how how it's drawing people that these other sources of revelation can be? But at the root of all of these, is a dissatisfaction with the one true living God as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. It's idolatry. It's a violation of the first, second, and third commandments. And its end, as Jude is so clearly showing us, is not heaven, but hell. Be careful about other sources of revelation What a gracious God, by the way, that we have that would leave us with a spiritual sketch of what an apostate looks like. And here at the beginning of verse 8, what we've seen is that we need to be alert to anyone who appeals to another source of revelation and not Scripture alone. Now, listen, that was such a person that you may encounter. It may be just a sign of spiritual immaturity. It may be a sign that maybe they are being led astray by an apostate, or indeed, it may be that they are an apostate. Well, as as we get down to verses 23 and 24 at a later date, we'll see how we're to deal with such people. But for now, the call is to be alert. Be hypersensitive to other sources of revelation. The second sign I want you to see is that apostates legitimize sexual sin. Also in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. Now, we don't tend to use the word defile much in our day, but it is a word that is used a lot, especially in in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, it's used to describe God's covenant people, Israel, who were defiling themselves by whoring after the idols of the nations that surrounded them, wanting and desiring to bow down to their gods and, and worship them. But here, Jude uses the term defile to refer to one of the many idols that apostates whore after, and that is the idol of sex. That's what he means by defile the flesh. They're defiling their flesh by committing sexual sin. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also defile the flesh. Like who? Well, like Sodom and Gomorrah, who he's just mentioned in verse eight, he says, that, or verse seven, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, I'm not going to preach the same sermon that I did last time on Sodom and, and Gomorrah, but just for the purposes today, they had descended into a cesspool of sexual sin. Sexual sin had been legitimized in, in those cities. You can catch a glimpse of that by reading Genesis chapter 19, as every man of the city, both young and old, surrounded Lot's house like a pack of hungry wolves, lusting to have a homosexual encounter with the inhabitants who had come to stay and lodge with Lot for the night, who were actually angels. Judah's saying that, that these apostates in this church that he's writing to, that they had crept into the, that had crept into the church, that they were indulging in the same kinds of sexual sins. They were indulging in what he says is sexual immorality and unnatural desire. Sexual immorality is simply any sexual activity that occurs outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that is, falls under the, the term sexual immorality. God has given sex as a good gift to be enjoyed by his people in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. But that's what, not what these people were doing. And then he uses the word unnatural desire, the term unnatural desire. That's just referring to a specific, specific sexual sin under the, under the umbrella of sexual immorality. And that is the same sin that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were engaging in, which was homosexuality. And so they were defiling the flesh by these sexual sins. But how are they legitimizing their behavior? Well, it tells us. It says by relying on their dreams. That's how they were legitimizing it. Their dreams gave them license to indulge. Take a peek behind the curtain of many apostates and you will find the legitimizing of sexual sin. You ever wondered how polygamy became a thing in Mormonism? That is, one man or one woman having multiple spouses? Well, it's not because Joseph Smith actually studied the Bible and actually came out with that. No, reliable sources actually tell us that he committed adultery on his wife and then conveniently had a revelation that it was God's will for men to have multiple wives. And so all of a sudden, the guilt of his sexual sin was erased, and he could indulge his sexual sinful appetites. Doesn't that shed some light on what it says here? That relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh. That's how idolatry works. Whatever the idol is, it becomes something that you must have. In this case... The idol is sex, and so it's something that your heart must have. And so your heart, what it does, it, it will do whatever it takes to justify making that 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 sin lawful. If it can't justify sexual, it can't justify sexual sin by a clear reading of the scriptures. So it must do one of two things: it must e- either have to pervert what the scriptures say, or it must search for another source. And that's what happened with Joseph Smith. The source that he searched for to validate his Uh, Sexual sin was his revelatory dream, which in turn legitimized his sin and opened the door for many men to follow him doing the same. For others, the idol of sex is legitimized in the one place in the world that it should never be legitimized, the church. Do you know that there are now thousands, maybe even millions, of professing Christians today who are enslaved to the idol of sex and who are finding their consciences appeased by churches that legitimize it. Churches that have abandoned the scriptures and are relying on another source of revelation. Man, this is what's going on right now with the United Methodist Church. Many of those churches have become a refuge for those who want to live in LGBTQ-related sexual sin. And in case you haven't heard or read about it, there is a formal split on the horizon over this issue in the United Methodist Church. Let me just ask you a question. Is God's word not clear about those who continue to live in sexual sin? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why? Because it's going to be so easy to be, let, to be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God's word is clear. That if you continue to live in sexual sin, regardless of your profession of faith, you will not go to heaven. Why? Because you prove yourself to be a false convert. Something happens at salvation where the heart is transformed by God and the heart that's transformed by God doesn't mean they don't struggle with sin anymore, but what it does mean is that they hate sin. They don't want to live in sin. But that's not what many churches are saying. They're legitimizing sexual sin and they're deceiving people into thinking that everything is right between them and God and it is not. It is the most unloving thing that any church could ever do. See, this is what apostates do. If you attend one of these churches, I want to just tell you, you need to run. You need to run, run, run as fast as you can. Run to a church that submits to the authority of God's word and preaches and teaches what God has said, not what people who've perverted the scriptures with their biased interpretations say. Listen, if you're living in sexual sin, I want to tell you today, I want to speak to you quite clearly, there is hope. But there is not hope in churches that legitimize it. There is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope in Him and Him alone. Christ can and will set you free when you turn from sin and turn to Him. That's exactly what He did for the members of the church. Many members in the church of Corinth. The very next verse in that verse that I just mentioned says this: Verse eleven. And such were some of you. That is, you were sexually immoral. You were practicing homosexuality. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, the grace of forgiveness is available to you and the strength to actually overcome it is available to you. This is something that, a, that, false, or, or, that apostates can't offer you. All they can offer you is a false justification to continue to feed the idol of a sex that will lead in both their destruction and yours. Ah, oh, the portrait of these spiritual kidnappers is taking shape. Be hypersensitive. Be alert. Apostates legitimize sexual sin. Don't be led astray. The third sign I want you to see today in this uh, verse 8. Apostates reject God's authority by rejecting His Word. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject Authority. Well, the very fact that this word authority is singular rather than plural gives us an idea of what Jude is talking about here. And a second clue is that the word he uses is actually a derivative of kurios, which is a word that means Lord. And so it's quite clear that, that Jude is not referring to authorities in general, but God's authority. Apostates reject God's authority. How do they do it? Well, A couple of ways. Fundamentally, they do it by relying on another source of revelation or relying on their dreams instead of relying on God's word. The revelation from their dreams or their other source of revelation cancels out the revelation of God in the scriptures. And this leads to the second way in which apostates reject God's authority, which is by their works. That's what Jude said in verse 4. They pervert the grace of God, our God, into sensuality. That's sexual sin. And as a result, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' authority is denied or rejected by what they do, their works. Jesus says, abstain from sexual sin. The apostates say, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You You can indulge in it. So apostates, again, reject God's authority by rejecting his word. This is exactly, by the way, what Peter said would happen. In Second Peter two one, he says this: "But false prophets also arose among the people. That's in the past. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." See, heresies are always destructive and always by nature a rejection of God's word. They're they are, uh, what they are is they're basically false teaching and false doctrine that contradict what God has laid down in the Scriptures. And Peter uses a very apt word to describe them. He says they're destructive. They don't bring freedom. They bring enslavement. They don't bring spiritual life. They put people in a spiritual chokehold that will eventually lead to death if they don't escape. And nowhere is the destructive nature of heresy seen clearer than when apostates pervert the gospel. How do they do that? Well, before we know how they do that, we need to make sure that we have a firm grasp on what the gospel is so that we can have an authentic to compare to the perverted version. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is simply this, Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done. The bad news is that you and I, we have broken God's law. We have incurred a uh, massive debt that you and I cannot pay. And the good news is this, is that God has sent His Son, Jesus, in order to pay that massive debt for us through His suffering and death on the cross, to pay the sin debt for His people. You see, our lives are like this continuously moving conveyor belt. At one end of it is our hearts. At the other end of it is, is that what accumulates. And so our, from our hearts keeps churning out lumps of coal. Those represent our sins. And as we get to the end of the conveyor belt, that coal keeps piling up and piling up and piling up and piling up and increasing and increasing and increasing. But just because we have the pile of coal, what does that represent? Again, it represents our our sins, every violation of God's law every lustful thought, every lie we've ever told, every dishonoring thought we've ever had uh, that dishonors God, every dishonoring word we've ever spoken, every dishonoring uh, uh, um, action that we've ever committed, all of that is piling up. And guess what? There is nothing that we can do to even remove one lump of coal from that pile. No religious activity No good work that we do can even take one lump of coal away. And the bad news is that the Scriptures tell us that that monument, that that pile sits there as a monument. And it says in the Scriptures that the soul that sins shall die and that the wages of sin is death. That means hell. And so that pile stands there condemning you and me to hell, and there is nothing that we can do about it except... To fling ourselves on the mercy of God that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus was on the cross, first thing you need to know about his life is, is, yes, his life had a conveyor belt too. Except what was coming and being churned out and piled up at the end of his life was not lumps of coal, but were nuggets of pure gold. That is he lived according to the law of His Father in thought and word and deed for the entirety of His life. He had a perfectly obedient life. And if, at the end of His life, the, the pile of gold was full and complete. Then He went to the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross, it was like He was a, a dump truck that backed up to the sins of His people and was loaded up and then drove it off to the incinerator to be consumed by God's wrath in their place. See, you and I broke God's law. Jesus came to pay the debt for us, to pay the fine for us. And then on the third day after He died, He rose from the dead, an undeniable sign that the vicarious payment that He had made for the sins of His people had been accepted by the Father. And in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, God's authoritative word says that you must stop trying to earn it. You must stop trying to work for it. And you must start trusting in Christ and Christ alone. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Not a result of works. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. The moment that you repent, which means to turn from your sin and Turn and trust in Christ. Every sin that you've ever had is forgiven. And that big pile of gold that is Christ is transferred to your account as if you had lived that perfect sinless life as He did. That is His perfect righteousness given to you. And on that basis, and that basis alone, you are declared as righteous in God's sight. That's what justification by faith alone means. You're trusting in Christ and His righteousness is imputed to you. Let me ask you this morning, have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ and Christ alone? If you haven't, that big pile of coal, that big pile of sin is still yours. And at any moment, you could be consumed by God's wrath. It is His sheer grace and mercy and patience that hasn't consumed you yet. But yet today, how gracious He was to send you here that you can hear the gospel and have the offer of salvation presented to you. I urge you today to repent and believe before It is too late. You don't know when you will die. See, this is God's gospel delivered to us in his word. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by works, not by works, not by works. And here's where the heresies of apostates become so destructive. They reject this gospel. They reject God's authority by perverting his gospel. And I want you to hear this straight from the horse's mouth. In the book of Mormon, Second Nephi twenty-five, twenty-three. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Translation, you do your best and Christ will do the rest. That is a false gospel that will lead you to hell. We don't have time to unpack all the countless ways that the Mormon church rejects God's authority this morning. But suffice it to say that in order to be saved, you have to do a whole host of works. You have to be baptized by immersion. You have to be obedient to the teaching of the Mormon church, which is countless things. You have to do good works. And according to Brigham Young, the first prophet after Joseph Smith, in order to be saved, you must keep the commandments of God, which will cleanse away the stain of sin. Not the blood of Jesus cleansing away the stain of your sin, but the commandments of God. Apostates that reject God's word are lethal. How about Jehovah's Witnesses? And Let God Be True, a book that's put out by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, it says blatantly, Immortality is a reward for faithfulness, that is, obedience. How can I earn immortality or everlasting life? I must be obedient, that is, I must do good works. That's exactly why they knock on your door. They are earning their salvation. There's a gentleman by the name of John, a Jehovah's Witness, that knocked on my door one time. And I asked him, I said, John, when you're standing before God on Judgment Day, whose righteousness are you relying on? He said, what do you mean whose righteousness am I relying on? He said, my own. (laughs) It's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Apostates that reject God's Word are lethal. Let's talk about the Catholic Church. Now, I know there, there are some of you here that may be Catholic, and I know that you have an affinity for your church, I just want to urge you this morning to pay, don't let that be a a stopper in your ears that you do not hear what I'm about to say. They have perverted the gospel, the only gospel that can save. I want to read one of the decrees that was issued at the Council of Trent, which was a response to one of the central cries of the Reformation of the Reformers, that justification is by faith alone, that is not by works. That is, you being counted as righteous in God's sight, is, comes to you by faith alone, complete justification by faith in Christ alone, not by works. That is not what the official teaching of the Catholic Church is. In fact, this is what it says in the, in the Council of Trent. If anyone, of, anyone says that the justice or the righteousness received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works... But that the said works are merely the fruits or the signs of the justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, of that justification, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. In other words, if you don't believe that good works contribute to your justification before God, you are cursed. That is not the gospel. See, Catholicism teaches that that justification that is being acceptable before God is kind of like a gas tank. It can be full or empty. It can go up or down. And so good works, including participating in the sacraments, increase it. And mortal sins, they erase it. And you might be here this morning, you might be thinking, isn't this just a matter of semantics? No, it is a matter of another gospel that can't save It deflates the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and it practically transforms Christ's words that He uttered on the cross after He had finished it all. It practically transforms those words into saying, it is partially finished and you must go and do the rest. Listen, I know if you're a Catholic, I know that you probably don't like what I'm saying right now, but I don't say it out of hatred or self-righteousness. I say it out of love because I don't want you to be deceived, but because I care about your eternity. If you're having a hard time with this, I want to plead with you to pick up your Bible this afternoon and read Romans 1 through 4, which has to do with justification. It's simply just ask yourself one question. What role do my works play in my acceptableness before God? That's it. And let God be your authority instead of the official teaching of the Catholic Church. And I'll leave that there. How about charismatic churches? Listen, not all charismatic churches have perverted the gospel, but listen, the conditions are ripe for it to happen when other sources of revelation are being relied upon. And I just want to give you one example of where this can lead from, again, Joyce Meyer. Jesus paid on the cross and went to hell in my place. The scene in the spirit realm went something like this. God rose up from his throne and said to the demon powers, tormenting the sinless Son of God, let him go. Then the resurrection power of the Almighty God went through hell and filled Jesus. His spirit went to hell because that is where we deserve to go. There is no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth. You know what she's claiming? She's claiming that you cannot be saved unless you believe that Jesus went to hell to pay for your sins. Clearly, another gospel. Another gospel that you can only get by Joyce Meyer Revelation We could go on and on and on, but I hope this is enough to convince you that apostates are not just going for a flesh wound. They are going for your jugular. They are seeking to draw you away from the faith, seeking to drag you you way down to hell. And sadly, they will succeed with many false converts who profess Christ. And though they will ultimately fail with those who genuinely trust in Christ, The Scriptures tell us that many disciples will be dragged away for a season. And I don't want that to happen to you. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want us to have to endure a nightmare like that. See, apostates are, are, are fierce wolves, as Paul said, and they will not spare the flock. But thanks be to God's grace to us here today in this letter, we have begun to see a portrait of what these spiritual kidnappers look like so that we can identify them and and not be led astray. So what we've seen today is that apostates rely on another source of revelation. Be hypersensitive to that. Legitimize sexual sin. Be hypersensitive to that. And reject God's authority by rejecting His Word. Be alert, Grace Church. Well, as we conclude today, I want to tell you the rest of uh, Kara's story who was kidnapped. After being kidnapped by Richard Evans, the, Evenitz, the uh, serial killer, he took her back to his apartment and treated her shamefully. But by God's grace, she was able to escape her captor 18 hours after her abduction. Eventually, Kara went into law enforcement and she became a voice to warn people about uh, the signs of, 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 a, of a kidnapper so that they wouldn't have, people wouldn't have to endure the same nightmare that she did. Well, similarly, there are many people who have escaped from spiritual kidnappers, apostates, and have become a voice to warn Christians of the signs of apostasy. Because they don't, in the same way, they don't want people to have to endure the same nightmare that they had to endure. Well, church, we have those signs right here. We have them right here in God's Word. And this is just, by the way, one of the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ exercises His, his office as King over His people. He protects us by sketching a portrait of our enemy so that we will not be led astray. What a wonderful king we have that would protect his sheep like this. Let's pray. Oh Lord, hard things sometimes come to us in your word, but they are good for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have warned us by giving us a spiritual sketch or have begun to in, in, in the book of Jude, Jude chapter 8, Jude verse 8, that, that we have here for us these signs that we need, to be, we need to be careful of, we need to be aware of, we need to be alert to. Lord, thank you that you've reminded us that, that you do not want us being led astray by, astray by someone who appeals to another source of revelation. Thank you that you've warned us that you do not want us to be led astray by those who legit, legitimize sexual sin, or those who reject your authority by rejecting your word. Oh, we pray, Lord, for those here today who who may be here and may have even tiptoed down that road where they are following apostates. We pray that you would draw them back. Pray for the lost that you would convert them. And we pray for us, Lord, that this would be a means that you use to protect us from apostates that may one day come into the midst of Grace Church. Thank you for being a sufficient king. Thank you for being a king that reveals this truth to us. Oh, Lord, let us hear it, and let us, let us beware and be alert. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.